Good morning. Welcome to the next panel. This is Game Changers. I'd like to introduce the, the panel members. Uh, my name is John Keough. I'm a partner at Clyde & Co. Law firm. I run the North American trade, marine, and shipping practice based here in New York. Joining me on the panel today, we've got an awesome group of people. Mark O'Neill, president of Columbia Ship Management, to my left. To his left is Knut Orbeck-Nielsen, CEO of DNV GL. And to his left is Mats Berglund, CEO of Pacific Basin. We have one panelist who unfortunately isn't able to join us today, but I'm going to, uh, I'm going to light the fuse and let these guys run with this. Uh, essentially, we're going to cover three topics. First, the 0.5% uh, sulfur cap imposed by the IMO that begins January 2020. Next, we're going to cover some digitalization and technological innovation changes that the industry is seeing and their perspectives on those. And third, if time permits, we're going to do a brief run through some of the, uh, the key U.S. sanctions issues that are uh, plaguing the, uh, the industry these days. So, with no further ado, uh, Matt's, the 0.5% sulfur cap. Uh, is compliance with the low sulfur cap a real realistic option in the dry bulk trade, in your view? I think complying with it is, is not a choice. Uh, you have to comply, but you can do it two ways, as you know, scrubbers or, or buy the more expensive fuel. Um, for a dry bulk company operating small handies and supermaxes trading worldwide, we do not think that scrubbers is a, is a very smart solution. I think it's a bit of a trap to to make the ship owners carry the cost uh, uh, that the oil companies should, should uh, pay for. We don't think it's a very smart and efficient solution. The sulfur should be taken out at the refinery <coughs> instead of on board a ship and then pumped out in the ocean. It's partly a, a meaningless process. Speed is also underestimated, right? And it would be a much uh, bigger and better environmental benefit if speeds slow down, which they would if we're burning more expensive uh, MGO, uh, while it will be the other way around. It will kind of be a double loss if ship owners install scrubbers. First they make the investment, but then everybody follows uh, and speeds will instead increase as a result of the cheaper fuel and you're losing twice. I think people underestimate the ability to pass on the cost of, of CapEx to the customer. A lot easier to pass on the cost of the fuel to the customer, uh, and especially if it is the same for everybody. So we're realizing it's a bit late now to instead ban HFO, but that would have been the much, much smarter solution. Mark, what's your perspective on this, please? Is uh, it a game changer? Morning, everybody. Um, I, I hear everything and agree everything with what Mads has said, um, and, and I think you know I think we're all, in a sense, tired of hearing about this this topic. But we have to 
keep revisiting it at uh, conferences like this. I think everybody here in the room involved in shipping is continuing to make their uh, assessments. It, it, is a, it is undoubtedly a game changer. It will lead to uh, scrapping of uh, older tonnage. Um, it will cause operators to look at alternative fuel sources like LNG, which is gathering uh, pace. But uh, Mads and I talked outside this room just before we came on. I think there's going to be a lot of vessels that are being built at the moment with scrubbers on board that might find this technology, this expensive technology and this space-consuming technology being redundant. And, and I think that's a, that's a factor that, that needs to be borne in mind. A lot of vessels being built at the moment with scrubbers may not actually need them in a few years' time. And then it's a question of how, you know, what, what one does with them and how, how easy is it to remove the scrubbers. So, yes, I think we all, we all appreciate that, that everybody involved in shipping is continuing to do their assessments, and it's really wait and see at the moment to see which way uh, the market goes. Matt, are the uh, refineries ready to meet this demand? You've got to ask them, but, but I think uh, they, they, you, certainly the land transportation market is much, much bigger than the marine uh, fuels market. So it's less of a dramatic change. I think the biggest change will be for the HFO market, uh, and availability of HFO may be a much bigger problem than availability of, of MGO or, or low sulfur fuel. So even if you do decide to invest in a scrubber, you may not be able to buy the fuel Certainly not if you're, if you're trading worldwide. How about enforcement issues? Do you see any issues on the horizon with the IMO's ability to enforce the sulfur cap? Mark, do you want to weigh in on that? I, I think it's too early to, uh, to say exactly how uh, IMO will, um, will, will view this, uh, whether there's a, a little bit of leeway given in the, in the first initial period, which one would hope and expect, but uh, I think it's too early to, to assess that at this moment. Where does LNG come into this mix? I think that's certainly a much, much smarter solution longer term. I mean, scrubbers do nothing for NOx, it does nothing for CO2. Uh, LNG uh, does that, and uh, uh, I think, you know, ordering a new ship today uh, with an engine designed to burn HFO is not very forward-looking. We have much more technically knowledgeable people than, than me here, but, and, and to fit a scrubber on an HFO engine and order a new ship like that today, I think is absolutely, you have to ask yourself what you're doing. I think LNG, longer term, as prices come down today, it's cost prohibitive on smaller bulkers at least, but it's certainly a much, much smarter, a longer-term, environmentally better solution. Or dual fuel, or maybe a, a monofuel engine. An engine that is designed to and optimized to burn MGO. Yeah, if, uh, John, if I could just uh, chip in a bit. So, um, I think it's, uh, it's naturally a, a great challenge for the shipping industry to be faced with these uh, stricter regulations on emissions during these times. Um, uh, however, um, I think we have uh, bad news coming in the way that these regulations will continue to come. 
Uh, now we have the sulfur cap in 2020. Uh, we will have stricter regulations on CO2 emissions coming. I think the time is really prime now for the shipping industry to really look at innovative ways. And, and Maltz mentioned the LNG as fuel, which is certainly one alternative. Uh, but there are also a lot of other alternatives coming, uh, still immature, but if you look to, for instance, battery technologies, uh, there are certain things that batteries can help with, especially when you're doing the final approach to ports, uh, and when you are, uh, are sitting inside of the ports, especially in the more sensitive areas. So there is a prime time now for the maritime community to look at alternatives, and, and I think this is what will uh, be very decisive for who will be tomorrow's winners. Canoe, let's, uh, let's shift gears now with you uh, taking the lead on this one. Um, digitalization and technology. It's, it's right in your wheelhouse, in your business. Uh, how does DNV leverage those aspects of technology? Yeah, I think we've already touched a few te uh, topics on technology with the fuel issue. Um, there's no doubt that diversity of fuels will be extremely important going forward. Uh, if I come back to, to your question on digitalization, I think for many of us this has been an area where there's been lots of fluff, lots of talk. Um, we really have to pinpoint what is the benefits that digitalization as a means can bring to the shipping industry. And uh, just to give you a couple of examples from our own work inside DNVGL, uh, we really uh, tried to be much faster at customer response. I think this applies to everyone in the shipping industry, so we're moving away from an environment where we responded uh, in matter of days to uh, using machine learning algorithms, uh, helping our people, our experts, we are now able to respond in a few hours' time on technical queries. So this is one very practical way of leveraging uh, digital technologies. Uh, the other one that I would like to mention is on inspection technologies. So um, for 150 years or more, we've had uh, inspectors on board the vessels. Uh, we will still continue to have that, but we are also able now to utilize drones. Uh, and many of you probably fly drones uh, in your leisure time, and it's great fun. But you could also use drones for ship inspections to access, uh, access really the difficult uh, places, the high altitudes, the ducts, etc. And you not only provide a safe working environment, but you also provide through the drone really high quality imaging that can help you detect, you know, corrosion, uh, cracks, uh, structural failures, etc. And this can all be done from a safe working platform. So I think these are just two examples of how digitalization can help us uh, improve the quality and the safety in the shipping community. Thanks. Mark, could you uh, explain for us your views on how, how your business focuses on technological innovation as, as a way to optimize vessel operations? What factors do you focus on? Yeah, I just want to, I was just about to jump in on, on what Knut uh, was saying there. I, I think people have got to get away from this obsession with digitalization being technology or software focused. It, it may be primarily technology and software focused, but that's not 
the, the, the full picture. The, the digitalization is uh, about innovation, it's about processes, and it's about technology and the interaction between all those three. So you can become a fully digitalized company by looking at the processes you carry out and improving those processes by innovating your, uh, the service you provide and then with a little bit of additional technology, be it software or hardware. You don't have to be, and uh, Knut's not suggesting for one moment that you, that you do, you don't have to be flying drones around your vessels and, and, and having a completely paperless office, et cetera, to be a digitalized uh, business. I think um, digitalization was kind of last year's topic. Uh, this year's topic is really looking at what, we, what are we trying to achieve through digitalization. And what we're trying to achieve is optimization. So digitalization is not the end. It's a means to the end. And the end is optimization, the optimization of um, our processes, uh, the optimization of how we, how we minimize OPEX. Um, I was talking to one of the classification societies in connection with various projects that we're undertaking, and they said to me, unless an operator can reduce OPEX by 30% in the next five years, that operator will find it increasingly difficult to remain in the market. And how do we do that? We do that through optimization of what we're doing. And, you, and digitalization is just one of the the, the tools in our uh, uh, toolbox. We have to uh, optimize our OPEX, we have to optimize our processes and look really at what we do and can we do it better and more efficiently. We have to optimize uh, our technology, our training and recruitment of uh, crew, the way we involve class, uh, coming back to one of the things Knut said, it may not be necessary to fly a, cl a classification surveyor around the world to meet your vessel if you are engaged in a, in a digital environment. There is a blockchain environment set up within that which allows for a virtual file that the classification society is part of and can see that you are compliant in ABCD and actually it just requires a fleeting visit at a particular port rather than a long survey by one of their surveyors. So it's, it's optimization of all of these processes that uh, at the moment we are um, perhaps inefficient uh, in connection with those. And I think it is I agree with that particular classific uh, classification society's analysis. I think it, it is an existential question uh, and problem for us all. Will those operators who don't optimize, will they still be around in five years? Yes, but they will find it increasingly difficult to um, compete when optimized companies are reducing their OPEX by 30%. Optimized companies are able to fit into the vertical structures that we're going to be seeing increasingly in shipping. The Amazons and the Alibabas taking over uh, vertical structures and we as operators, as managers, have to fit into those vertical structures. So if you're not optimized, you're not in the game. Uh, and, and you will, there'll always be a market on the periphery. Of course there will, there'll always be niches, but it really is, I think, fundamental going forward that, that the focus is not this obsession with digitalization. The obsession should be optimizing what you do and how you do it. Um, so I think that's, that's the game changer, and, and certainly it's through the digitalization analysis that one gets to that, and you have to, 
you can't digitalize rubbish. You can't digitalize inefficient, costly processes. You have to first boil those down and, and, and look at how you can improve. Then you digitalize. You, 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 you carve it in, in, in stone. And it's a path. It's not something that you, you do once and you're done and now everything's hunky-dory. It, it, it's a path that you're on that is never-ending. Um, and you commit to that path and you, and you go forward with it and, and embrace the changes as they, as they come along. So that's what I see um, really the, the, the challenge for all of us is this optimization process and, and digitalization. There'll, there'll be other concepts that come out and sit alongside digitalization, but digitalization is not the end by any stretch of the imagination. Matt, do you want to weigh in on, on this? And would you comment also, please, on the game changing effect you see on, on ship design? In the dry bulk trade especially. Maybe first on this most recent subject, uh, I think gradual automation on the, on the OPEX side is, is a means to gradually reduce your cost and it's, it's gradual, right? I don't think, think it's a one time, but you know, monitoring uh, machinery, uh, avoiding malfunction early, gradually automating, uh, lowering your cost that way. On the commercial side, it's more fuel, even more fine-tuned fuel optimization it is knowing where all the ships are, not only your own ships, but everybody else's ships and, and you know, where they're heading, at what speed, and trying to, to take advantage of that type of information that is fully available today. What was your second question? Second question is what do you see the effect on ship design, if any, in this process? Again, I think the message is loud and clear. Don't order new buildings. They look pretty much the same they did 20 years ago. <coughs> Secondhand value is much more attractive. Let's make some money instead and save that up so we can buy a really new ship that looks more like these two gentlemen speak about. Maybe it will be LNG-fueled. But yeah, I think today's new building will, will not last very long. We're, we're in, the, in the context of optimization, we're looking at various packages that we can offer our clients and, and, and would-be clients and, and, and just coming up, uh, enforcing what Matt said. It doesn't cost a lot to uh, put on board the technology required to achieve these optimizations. You don't need to go out and buy, necessarily buy a brand spanking new vessel. You know, uh, these, you'd be amazed now what one can buy, an operator or a manager for a thousand bucks in terms of sensors that really allow you to establish accurately the vessel's position, minimize delay at ports, optimize to a very fine degree the fuel consumption, and that links in with the minimization of delay at, uh, at port, allowing you uh, to embark on really exciting preventative maintenance. Before the, before the light bulb on the right goes, you replace it because you know on a, on a balance of probability it will go in the next two hours uh, and you avoid the, uh, the, the, the follow-ons. Optimizing your dry docking um, processes and experience to minimize the waste and, 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 and cost associated with that and crew change it crew changeovers, uh, you know, these, these, this sort of technology uh, that comes with part and parcel of digitalization as an aspect, um, all of this, all of this uh, ability is there and you, and, uh, and you don't need to rush out and, and uh, order vessels with, with all of it on board. It, it can be achieved very cost effectively. Knut, you've developed platforms and databases. Yeah. Uh, you want to weigh in here? 
Yeah, I would, I would just like to add a comment on, on ship design. I think it's, um, it, it's really interesting. You probably all heard the discussions about the unmanned vessels. I think that's a, you know, a game-changing uh, new ship design. I think, although that, that is a little bit of a sidetrack, I don't think you should really put too much uh, emphasis on the unmanned vessel. Uh, the real interesting uh, story is about uh, autonomy. So how much autonomy can you put into a new vessel uh, design? And, um, you know, both my colleagues uh, talked about sensors, sensor technologies, the advantages of extracting data, that data needs to be reliable. Um, and, and, and the business case is very simple, if you ask me. If you look, for instance, at the engine room for a tanker, you have maybe four offices. If you could reduce uh, those four offices to two offices by way of automation of, of the systems and the design, I think already there is an interesting business case. It's one in which you have saved some OPEX and you are able to compete uh, at, a, at a different level. Uh, now, uh, it's really uh, important that when you are, are extracting these data, that you have a place to go with the data, that you're making sure that the data is of the right quality, that you're able to share the data with the right people, both inside your own organization, but also with the vendors of interest. And I think this is one area where we at DNVGL has put out the Veracity data platform as a platform to collaborate with different players in the industry. And I think for, for the ship owners, managers um, like uh, Mark and Mats, I think this is a great opportunity where they can extract, share, and utilize the data to create a competitive advantage. Thank you. Mats, what effect do you see, what's the game-changing effect you see on the new building market today? Would you order a new building today? I think I've already said I uh, would absolutely not order a new building today. So uh, we, we do not think, uh, I mean, it's unprecedented uncertainty. Uh, Knut mentioned there will be more regulations coming. I mean, to, to fit a new building with a scrubber today, it's a massive kit. I think it's just un, un, you know, undefendable to do that. And more regulations will come on CO2 primarily, but also other stuff. How long will you be allowed to pump out uh, the sulfur and the other, you know, toxic particular matters that you take out through the scrubber water, you pump it out in the ocean. You know, in some places you're already not allowed to do that, and most scrubbers are open loop technology, and that's what you that's what you're doing. It's a meaningless process. So I, I don't think new buildings are are easy today, and more importantly, secondhand values are still still very attractive. Still a lot of upside in secondhand values. Much shorter payback period, right? You know order a new ship today, you get it two years from now, you need to use it for 25 years. You think you're gonna you know, run around with an HFO engine with a scrubber 27 years from now? I don't think there's a chance, right? So you can buy a 10-year-old ship for 40% of the price of a new building, and you can have a, a maybe five, seven, eight, three-year payback if you get a decent market. Much easier to overview that period and a much more comfortable investment to propose. I, I agree totally with what Matt is saying, but uh, it's very difficult to justify, isn't it, when you have a, you know, one of my game changers that when, when John uh, approached us and said, what do you see as the game changers, one of my game changers was the appetite 
uh, the raw appetite of the, the Chinese finance leasing markets for projects. And uh, you know, whilst on the one hand it's it, it, it's it's welcome to see, you know, it, I think it is a, a game changer because the risk is that we we find ourselves very quickly in uh, a, a pre-2008 situation that we found ourselves with a ship, the traditional ship financing banks of, uh, of old. And uh, you know, if the economics work, then it's a, a very difficult decision not to go for a new build over a, a second-hand vessel. And, and the economics are increasingly working when presented with some of these uh, offers from, from Chinese leasing stroke finance banks. Thanks. Well, let's let's switch to our, our final topic. We've got just a minute or two to, to address uh, the potential game-changing effect of sanctions. And, and Mark, would you comment briefly on, on your perspective of the uh, the risks that you see in sanctions compliance, particularly with the U.S. sanctions, and, and what's going on now with the latest issues involving both Iran and uh, uh, Russia, as well as emerging problems with ship-to-ship -ship transfers involving North Korea and, and issues involving Venezuela. Yeah, I think, um, <coughs> excuse me, coming at this from a, a, an ex-lawyer, uh, that, that obviously sanctions were uh, and are massively important for, for all of us in the, in the shipping community, and we always have to have a weathered eye on, on what the latest developments are, and it, and it requires uh, a, a sizable team within all of our organizations to make sure that we are inverted commas sanctioned compliant at all times. Sometimes we can fall foul of that without even realizing it. Um, John and I discuss situations where it's perfectly possible to have a vessel trading with Iran that is sanctioned compliant in every shape and form. Uh, it has a compliant cargo, uh, it has a, a, a compliant charter, it has a compliant receiver. Uh, there are no aliases or, or associated companies that are on the, uh, the OFAC list, but you just happen to have on your board a U.S. person who uh, takes some decisive executive decisions, and that could render you uh, on the wrong side of sanctions. And, you know, I've experienced cases uh, as a lawyer where precisely that happened. We found ourselves borderline uh, in, in sort of the gray area of sanctions because we had a U.S. person sitting on the board of directors to whom certain decisions were deferred on an executive function. Very, very important to be aware of that despite everything else falling into place. Equally, if something happens whilst your vessel is in Iran uh, and you have to put up a letter of guarantee or some form of security, you will not be able to do that. If, if the vessel is involved in a collision, it is very, very difficult to put up security. Your vessel will then be arrested in, in, in Iran, and it will be an extremely difficult uh, task to get that vessel out. Why? Because the reinsurance market is predominantly based here in the U.S., and, and those reinsurers can't afford to fall foul of um, uh, Iranian sanctions. So it is a a very complicated issue. I'm always surprised by the number of companies I come across that pay lip service to sanctions. They don't really have a proper sanctions team, a sanctions policy in place. Woe betide those companies that ultimately do fall foul because in my experience as a lawyer, I found that OFAC were very understanding if you have a detailed sanctions policy that you abide by, that your staff uh, are aware of uh, and that a mistake is made. That's one thing. 
The other thing is to say, do you know what, this is not really, doesn't really concern us, this is somebody else's problem, and then OFAC will come down extremely hard. So very, very important to have um, detailed sanction policies that are known by all your staff and that you have a system in place to monitor sanctions through law firms or various other uh, service providers. Um, and then the final issue that, that, that does concern me is snapback. You know, we have a, a very fluid political situation worldwide. Um, people coming in and out of favor uh, with the US and with others uh, at a rapid rate. How does that affect our trading? Uh, you have vessels bound for Iran and all of a sudden there is a snapback uh, and a change of approach by the US uh, on Iran. Does that cause us to abort the, the, the voyages? Can we, can we enter into long-term COAs with Iranian counterparts safe in the knowledge that the situation will, will, will go on? No, we can't. So, um, I'm going to stop you right there. We're just about out of time. Sorry to interrupt you there. Yeah. Mats, uh, Knud, any last words as we wrap this up? Not, not for me on sanctions, okay. no. no I'm from from a classification society perspective, I mean, we, we are working to safeguard life, property, and the environment, and sanctions is naturally a political instrument, and uh, um, I find it so, sometimes difficult to let that trump the uh, interest of safety. That's my comment. Well, we're out of time. Uh, if you've got any questions, uh, please feel free to grab any of the panel members just outside. Thank you very much for your attention. I'd like to thank each of the panel members for a lively discussion. Thank you.